Welcome to A Cult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky, and your co-host is Rudolf Berger. This is episode number 201, featuring an interview with Peter Mark Adams, who returns to the show to discuss his recent book, Mystai, Dancing Out the Mysteries of Dionysus, published by Scarlet Imprint. The Cult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to chamberofreflection.com, our membership site. Before we get into the show intro, I need to say a few words about our current circumstances. Probably like you, I'm now isolated in a sort of a lockdown situation to prevent the spread of the COVID-19 virus. I pray that you all stay well, not too stressed by everything that's happening, but the main point that I want to convey is that this situation, while unusual to us, does not change the fundamental reality in which we exist. Our futures are always uncertain. We never know when the end may arrive. In fact, we all suffer from a fatal condition called being human. As initiates, occultists, mystics, Freemasons, Illuminists, and magicians, we're taught to meditate upon death and impermanence as a most effective method to transform from being self-concerned to caring about the world and others. We must hold this in our minds and always remember that a contagious disease spreading through our communities doesn't change the fact that we must do the right thing even though it may require courage to do so. Be brave and know that you can put your spiritual practice to the test in these days. We have the capacity to control our reactions and decisions. Use that ability with wisdom and help those around you who need it. I encourage you to be tender-hearted and compassionate even more so than before. Spread that instead of fear. We must be the light and not just talk about it. So in that spirit, beginning later this week, I'll be posting older content from the Chamber of Reflection Members Archive publicly at no charge. I'll offer a free recording each day of an older interview, presentation, or a meditation. Links to this free content uh, will be posted on the Occult of Personality Facebook page and our Twitter starting on Friday, March 27th. During this time when we're adapting to new circumstances in various ways, the least I could do is offer you some additional content to fill your days with more magic and mystery. Now, in episode number 201, Peter Mark Adams returns to the show to discuss his wonderful book, Mystai. You can find Peter Mark Adams online at petermarkadams.com. Peter appeared on the show previously to talk about his book, The Game of Saturn, 
Peter Mark Adams is an author, esotericist, tarotist, and professional energy worker. He has been engaged in practical research in the fields of esotericism, energy, consciousness, and healing for over 45 years. Now, Peter's latest book, Mystai, concerns the mysteries of Dionysus. I must say, I once again find myself very impressed by the work of Peter Mark Adams. In Mystai, Adams has revealed sacred imagery and its function within a long-dead lineage of the mysteries. His skill in explaining the frescoes, their meanings, and purpose within the ritual context help us understand this mystical system lost to the mists of time. In the interview, Adams explains how this cult functioned by ritually honoring the deity with a form of devotion that caused mystical union. Peter Mark Adams has quickly become one of my favorite authors in this genre. His work is groundbreaking, and I always learn new things. Not to mention, the book itself is gorgeous, and because of the design, materials, colors, and contents, it felt like an indulgent luxury to sit and read it. I highly recommend Mistai. Peter Mark Adams, I want to welcome you back to Occult of Personality podcast. It's great to speak with you again, and uh, I've been looking forward to uh, talking with you on the occasion uh, of your new book, Mistai, published by Scarlet Imprint, a really gorgeous volume, and uh, the the contents are no less uh, beautiful than the the physical book itself, so... It's great to speak with you again. Hi, Greg. Um, wonderful to be back with you both. It's been a couple of years, so it's great to catch up. It's been over two years indeed, and I'm glad to be back also with Greg and with Peter again here. Okay. Yeah, it's wonderful. And uh, just as an aside, I felt uh, very strongly that Rudolph really needed to be present for this interview because... Uh, I think there's many elements of this book and the story that it tells that really <laughs> you needed to be here for. Me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how we get on there. Yeah. Right. So I guess to begin, Peter, why did you feel the need to to do this project? Because I can see just from reading the book and looking at the images and it, it seems like a a tremendous project yeah i mean it's it's kind of been brewing for decades um the information about these frescoes from a let's say ritual perspective is very limited uh, it, it's like the subject uh, has like slipped between different disciplines. So archaeology has had a huge bite of this, um, but increasingly their interests are in the preservation and you know conservation of frescoes. Art history seems to be more interested in stylistics than in the um, ritual process itself. 
and and, and like classical philology is is far more interested in you know, literary sources for the imagery so that we're left with this like core of what were these women actually doing uh, what kind of process were they enacting is not really addressed very directly, although it's recognized that they're engaged in an initiation into the mysteries of Dionysus. Okay. Now, the mysteries uh, remain a mystery for most people. Uh, and, you know, it's certainly been a long term uh, subject of interest for myself. Um, and I suppose like most of us who are interested in, in, in this topic, you go around all kinds of sources to try and focus in on, on what it was that, that made the mystery religions um, so extraordinary. You know, we only have certain classical sources such as Plutarch, Cicero and Apuleius who talk about the outcome of the initiation process in terms of how it brought a much greater joy into life and a, a far greater sense of security in the face of death. And I think it's because of these first-hand reactions to mystery initiation that it's kind of caught the Western imagination but has largely remained a closed door um, it's almost as though the cultural resources of our language and of our outlook on life um, distance us from that primal experience that the, the mysteries were able to engage people in. And, and they did so for a thousand years. It was not a, so to speak, hit or miss matter. It was a consistent high level um imparting of a high level of spiritual realization and it's extraordinary that this could this could take place on such a systematic uh, basis since there is absolutely no institutional basis for this in 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 western culture as it stands right now mm. so i understand that you know for, for some hundreds of years certainly since the enlightenment um, this topic of the mysteries, often phrased in terms of the Egyptian mysteries, has, has been like a magnet for Western intellectual interest. But it's always still remained at some remove, almost slightly beyond the grasp of Western intellectual um, reach. So I, I put myself uh, in the ranks of, of those people. I've always been fascinated by the mysteries. And I think it was probably the cleaning process in 2015 that they, they undertook with the uh, Villa of the Mysteries in Pompeii that kind of brought it back into focus for, for many people. Was for the first time, we were able to make out details and to um, understand the, the depth of figuration and the, the beauty of the, the pigments used. So we have this extraordinary um, access to the frescoes in, in a form um, which is not, they've not been seen in since they were painted um, in the first century BC. And, and that again is, is a quite extraordinary thing for us. So it was certainly time to take a fresh look at the frescoes and see what the additional detail 
and the change in framework that we have, the intellectual framework for understanding the mysteries has, has kind of facilitated a, a, different, a different perspective, let's say. So I, I did see that the interest or, or the questions I had about the frescoes were not being addressed. Um, and those questions related specifically to the ritual activity um, rather than any of the other academic questions around this this uh, superb masterpiece. Can you give our audience maybe a little bit of background on the location and a little quick overview on the history so that when we continue to speak, uh, probably not everybody is so aware of, of that history and of the location as you are, of course, nobody is as you are, but um, so that they, that we have a little background, a little fill in on that. Yeah, the, the frescoes themselves are, are painted on, on two small rooms at the back of an enormous Roman villa in Pompeii and That itself is rather strange because this villa was was clearly inhabited by some of the elite of Roman society of the day. Um, and that stands in sharp contrast to the origins of these rites. Um, the, while most people know about the great um, initiation rites performed at, say, Eleusis or Samothrace, where you had a, a substantial um, kind of monumental presence, buildings, priesthood, um, and a high level of integration in, in the case of Eleusis with the uh, Athenian state. The mysteries of Dionysus stood in stark contrast to that in as much as Uh, they appear to have no institutional uh, framework or basis. There was no particular temple estate, for instance, where you would need to go to receive the initiations. Um, rather, they were, they were carried out by itinerant practitioners who carried a lineage, an initiatory lineage, in their family. It was a kind of inherited... Um, and very free-flowing kind of initiation, uh, grassroots in the, in the most literal sense. And, and they seem to have continued in this form for, for centuries, if not millennia, without uh, receiving any particular uh, institutionalization. Certainly by the fourth and third centuries BCE, we see the city-states increasingly concerned to start uh, registering these practitioners, perhaps getting them to pay their taxes. But interestingly, they were asked generally to bring a copy of their liturgy, a sealed copy, and deposit it, and to demonstrate to the authorities that their initiatory lineage um, was substantial, as to say it was carried in the family for three to four generations. So the state certainly tried to, or increasingly tried to, control um, this type of initiatory activity. But as far as I can see, it remained a freelance, itinerant, and very footloose type of uh, activity throughout the Greek world. Um, and, and therefore, I'm saying that stands in, in marked contrast to this elite Roman villa, 
where the finest reproduction of these rites <laughs> exists uniquely. So I can give you a little information about uh, Pompeii itself, courses in Campania, the, the southern half of Italy, and the coastal cities um, of Italy were colonized by Greek city-states from the 8th century BC onwards, so that um, you have a substantial presence um, of a Greek civilization on Italy um, going on for centuries. And it's within that context that these traditional Dionysian rites were being practiced. The Roman expansion or the expansion of Roman control, direct control of southern Italy um, occurred and was finalized in the first century BCE. And that accounts for the Roman presence in Pompeii. Um, it was after a rather bloody um, civil war, it's called the Social War. And the, the Romans occupied most of the cities in southern Italy and uh, the elites positioned themselves. Of course, Campania overlooking the Bay of Naples is more than desirable territory to be having a farm or villa on. And the Villa of the Mysteries is just that. It's about 3,500 square meters or so, 60 odd rooms. Um, probably we would call it palatial rather than a villa. And it's in that context um, that the elite Roman women of that villa have had two rooms decorated in this outstanding uh, and the most intense uh, Dionysian imagery and coloration. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think that gave a nice overview. Mm. I think it's interesting some of the things that you call out uh, in the the way that you uh, are discussing the uh, the frescoes and the Dionysian cult. One of the things that really stood out to me is this idea that with our modern worldview and the way we think of reality. Uh, is so far removed from the way that the people who lived in this time and place thought about reality to a great extent so that it may be difficult for us to truly understand exactly what it is that they were doing, what they believed and how that, because I, over the, past few years i've come to understand to a much larger degree how your view affects your experience i mean it really yeah. dictates the entirety of it so um not knowing the the view that these people held specifically i mean you may know it and historians may know it or perhaps even people who i think we'll get to this later the people who may be connected to this tradition may understand it but um it's i'm, I'm wondering if there's any way that that you can help us try to understand what their view may have been 
because it strikes me in, in looking at the images and reading your descriptions that, that as best I could imagine, this is uh, this sort of mystery cult uh, endeavors to awaken a sort of uh, ecstatic awareness that I would associate with traditions like uh, Sufism or Tantra. I'm sure there are others, but um, those come to mind specifically because of the connections with the ecstatic drunkenness or this Gnostic intoxication type of thing. Um, these sort of bliss wisdom states. So I'm just wondering if, is there any way that you can help us understand the view of these people and, and how we might better relate to their experience? Yeah. I, I, I think at the, the very core of this phenomena is this phenomena of mystery religions and initiations is a very uh, primitive set of beliefs and actions which probably we best uh, capture with the notion of possession cult um, and possession cults generally are, are like pervasive in human society I, I think something like 98-99% um, historically of human societies and cultures have had possession cults so that really is the ethnographically the 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 deep core of, of all the mystery initiations. And the possession cult means that the person opens themselves to the possession, being possessed by an entity. And in the case of the mysteries, I understand that that entity is a deity. So that also brings us to another ethnographic construction, uh, Mircea Eliade's idea of the uh, rites of higher initiation. I think he was the first one to frame this concept. Mm. <clears throat> Previously, we most people have thought of, of, of these kind of rites as rites of passage, which they're definitely not rites of passage. Um, you know, you can contrast the two easily. Rites of passage are passed through by everybody within a social group. You, you can't not go through and they change your social status. Um, the higher rites of initiation, by and large, are only ever engaged in by a tiny percentage of any population. I'm talking about maybe one in ten. Um, <clears throat> they are voluntary. They do not change your social status in any respect. They change the person in a fundamental way. Okay, so that's a, that's a second construct i think the third construct that we we need to try and grasp these rights is the notion of a spiritual hierarchy and of a uh, let's say higher order beings because we're not talking about possession cults in the sense of demonic possession that's to say involuntary generally or in terms of of certain um magical forms of possession okay which voluntary but um, for some material gain people can open themselves to entities which whether you classify them as demonic or daemonic doesn't matter really but but here we're looking at a very high order of entity and and again um, you you mentioned tantra and I, I think the the indo um, 
Tibetan rites of the Haya Yoga Tantra, the so-called deity yoga, are as close as you can get today to what it was that the mystery cults were um, doing. So our understanding of these Indo-Tibetan rites is that um, there's a certain process of, of inner purification and preparation necessary, and that by then um, engaging in a ritual in which one person, so to speak, uh, carries the connection to the higher order being, and that is sufficient to energize the ritual space so that momentarily your awareness merges with the deity and you have a experience of God consciousness, I, I, for want of a better expression. Um, now, you, most people don't normally have the yogic development sufficient to retain that level of awareness. Okay. So certainly in, in for instance, the, the Tibetan of Zogzhen, um, this initiation is given immediately. And then the spiritual practice is to attempt to recover it through your own effort. So that there's kind of a, a peak inflow of, of energy, the energia of the deity, which changes one's conception of oneself because it, it, it undermines, so to speak, the energetic supports of the persona momentarily and allows you to experience a space beyond that, which is, which has this sense of uh, eternal life. And I think this was the great gift that the mysteries gave, that it, it gave people a sense of continuity beyond the physical and um, social limits of, the, of their current lives, and especially in terms of their persona. It was no longer the kind of uh, boundary of reality. It, it was relativized permanently, so that it created a, a space beyond for consciousness to function in. Um, I hope this is uh, helping to answer your question, Greg. These are very difficult concepts, and they're doubly difficult in Western cultures that have abandoned most of the ideas in relation to higher order beings. Um, because without that, uh, you don't have a functioning system. Okay. But this is not a theological position that I'm trying to uh, put here. And at the end of the day, this is phenomenological. It's experiential knowledge. It's, it's direct embodied uh, experience that the mysteries um, conveyed. They did not convey a body of knowledge. They were not, so to speak, uh, discursive. Um, and there's an ex excellent framework put in place by Harvey Whitehouse where he contrasts um, imagistic forms of religion with doctrinal. And again, in, in, in Western culture, we have by and large fallen into purely doctrinal systems of spiritual and religious culture. Yes. Okay. So that the, you know, like the, the immediate embodied personal experience of the divine has been sidelined. Instead of that, you have a hierarchy of priests who, who do the rituals for you, so to speak. You don't partake, you observe. So that has created a conceptual problem for most Westerners 
in dealing with mystery religions. Um, and I think this this concept of, of an imagistic um, form of spirituality is core to understanding the frescoes. Oh, absolutely. Because, okay, Thank uh, you for that explanation. Yeah. Very, very brilliant. Do you see in the living Western tradition still today any that would come close at least to what you just explained you you said that today the yogic tantra um, tradition would be the one that actually is still um the closest to to that point of view as you just as you just explained but is there any of the classical western still existing traditions today that you would also name second after the yogic tantra um, or isn't there anything left of that in the west very difficult question to answer, I think, uh, Rudolf. Um, I'd like to say that in my understanding, um, we need to separate, let's say, mystical experiences from initiatory or initiation-driven experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, although you, you may want to argue that they both uh, attain to the same states ultimately. That's fine. I mean, I, I don't dispute it. I, I don't know how you would prove that, but it, it sounds like a reasonable thing to, to believe. But certainly with the mystery cults, the, um, the existence of a lineage holder is absolutely central to their right. ability to operate. Right. Um, and, and like parallel to that, therefore, um, the various mystical orders uh, within the various Christianities and within the various Islams all have um, access to these higher states of awareness, but they're not all initiatory. Some may be, right. some may be not. Um, but it's the initiatory a lineage holder who maintains a connection with a specific deity rather than some absolute deity. It's a specific, almost personhood or selfhood that they have the connection with, and they have a personal connection. I think that as well also is difficult for us to grasp uh, in the West today, where, where our notion of Godhead, so to speak, has become very abstract. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we don't have that sense of a personal um, being overseeing and um, facilitating changes in consciousness. We just have a, a kind of abstract uh, source, the one or the platonic good, um, which is a very abstract concept to aim at. Let's face it. It's <laughs> yeah, sure. So yeah. in, in a sense, the Dionysian rites, therefore, had a huge advantage as they didn't uh, carry this doctrinal load. Um, they allowed people to relate on an emotional basis to some aspect of the deity. And they had a cadre of people who carried and maintained a personal and direct relationship with the deity, mm -hmm. sufficient to be able to bring those energies through. So it was kind of <laughs> packaged in such a way that it could function within the society. So we, we're lacking that today. We have other forms of spiritual um, path, let's say, but they're incredibly difficult without a initiatory lineage 
to drive that initial transition of consciousness, you're really working to get anywhere. Right. You know, it's going to be very, very difficult. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but still, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, I have so many questions that uh, extend along very similar lines as this, but I feel like uh, we owe it to you and the publishers to just talk about the book itself. I mean, this is a really gorgeous volume. Uh, honestly, in just looking at it and holding it, 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 it seems like a totally museum worthy publication. Like it's really, you've done the frescoes justice with this book. Uh, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 Uh, I should say a few words about its construction, really. Please do. Um, the, the text for this book was, was uh, written in six months flat. Um, wow. Mm. And uh, it changed very little thereafter. Um, our problem was that we could not obtain high definition images uh, of the frescoes. Um, if you go to Pompeii and visit the rooms, um, you'll find that the lighting in there is very variable. Um, and that it's incredibly difficult to get in with uh, proper lighting and take the photographs yourself. You, you, you need a museum guard with you. You need to hire a lighting crew. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a job, I can tell you. Um, the museum there did have some high definition imagery of the frescoes, but they were they were quite dim. Because when you cast a, a, a bright light onto them, the colours are absolutely extraordinary. So Scarlet Imprint, I think, at the end of the day, had to turn to commercial imagery, and they had to piece it together to give a kind of seamless look and feel. For instance, the large um, centre page opens out to give a kind of panorama of the room, okay? So I think Peter Gray has done an incredible job uh, in terms of putting together the commercial imagery in, in, in a form so that it looks like it's just all been filmed in one go, you know, in right. the room itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's kind of sleight of hand a little, but it's worked very well. And um, that was the, the biggest problem, strangely. Only when we had received the high-definition imagery was I then able to go back and look at my text again and see whether the fresh details that were now visible altered that text in any way. And, and it did in fundamental ways. There, there was such fine details that were obscured in, in the, in the uh, imagery, all the imagery that's been taken up to now that changed my perspective and forced me off onto new avenues of research. Um, and, and, and so that we had the very late kind of copy editor <laughs> interaction to try and absorb as much of this material into the, into the like set text that we had without, without totally disturbing it. But at the end of the day, it was done. And uh, I think Alkistus's design is absolutely superb. 
and as always the production quality from scarlet imprint is excellent yeah. so it's fantastic team effort um, I'd like to mention Paul Holman in that context. He was a copy editor. He's uh, a joy to work with. Um, but, you know, it, it, it worked at the end of the day. I was, I was so happy with it. So happy yeah, with it. Yeah. Uh, I have to sing the praise of that as well. I'll have to double you, Greg, mm -hmm. because, because I have it here in front of me. And I just, a few weeks ago, I did an interview with uh, both Peter and Alkistis, actually, mm -hmm. about, the, about the book as a magical object, you know? And I mean, this is a really a holistic experience, this book. It's not just the imagery, it's not just the text, but it's the touch. It's when you touch the outside, the, yeah. the, the, tish, uh, the, 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 the cloth in which it is bound, the color of it. I mean, it is, it is just one experience. And, yeah. um, it's one of those rare examples of where you say, wow, this has as a book, as an object together with the content really been a, quite an experience i must say yeah thank you yeah i mean you'd be i don't know i mean i can't speak for you peter but mm. i mean i'm wondering like as an offering object to the deity this would be a suitable offering i think oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's totally dionysian isn't it you know the yeah <laughs> definitely yeah. you know it's so rich um i don't know if you've seen the fine edition i i uh, no, that that's extraordinary. Uh, Alkistus describes it as a Versace uh, production, and it, it really the the coloration she has uh, put into it is absolutely amazing. So you know that that is like on another level. <laughs> I bet, I bet, I can only imagine. <laughs> Shall we um, go back to the mysteries? Greg, <laughs> yes. Do you have a question? Do you have a question? No, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, there is a uh, paragraph I just wanted to read and ask you to mm. comment on. This is, uh, I think it's Heterotopius and the Interstices of Initiatory Space. Uh, page 77, mm -hmm. and you write, in line with these ideas, we can describe the occluded, symbolically and aesthetically prepared space of the theurgical and magical ritual as heterotopic, as a space that distorts, unsettles, and inverts the familiar. Not only are they illustrative of a symbolic or mythical narrative, the frescoes are intended to performatively shift awareness in the direction of the numinous realms to which the rites are directed. As such, they serve as metaphysical engines for the desired transformations. The arrangement and gestural logic exhibited by the figures covering the walls of the room are designed to operate as an almost three-dimensional cinematic representation of the interpenetrating planes of a sacred ritual that encompasses the physical, supraphysical, literary, metaphysical, and extra-dimensional vectors of meaning invoked by the right. That is a beautiful paragraph. I just, I can't tell you. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us more about that. 
the thing that struck me about these rooms, um, not only are they at the very back of this enormous villa, they're, they're, they're kind of situated so that there's no direct path to them. You really have to like pass through the master bedroom, you know, to get there. So they were in an area of the house uh, that you could only access by direct invitation, that's for sure. Uh, and when we compare the imagery, for instance, the um, the three women who are kind of blessing a herm lying in a, a container, um, their activity has been occluded. That's to say, if you know what they're doing, you can see. But if, if you're coming to it without um, that particular ritual in your mind, it's difficult to make out because the herm lying in the container is, is, is kind of, it's so vaguely delineated. Could be anything. So there's a kind of... Um, play here between opening and closing which i found very intriguing mm -hmm. so to say if you're positioning these frescoes for ritual purposes in such a private part of your own villa then why would you need to be so coy about um what they're depicting okay and and the fresco i mean i've seen vases in which these particular rituals are, are clearly mm -hmm. depicted, mm -hmm. you know. So it wasn't the case that it couldn't be done. It has been done. Um, so there's a certain discretion there. And yet, on the other hand, they took this uh, second style of, of Roman wall painting and greatly expanded the center section, precisely so they could fit in these life-size figures. And again, you know, this is... What function could this have? So I started thinking about the uh, context in which the room would function. And, and I believe that there's, there's two different contexts that we need to take account of. One is that when that room, uh, because the, the rites were nocturnal, when that room is, is lit by flickering torches and you have an intense ritual process being enacted within it, in which the initiate is there for the first time in that situation. You'll have incense, you'll have music, you'll have this flickering light of torches. The walls are going to take on a very different aspect than they have during daytime. They're going to, they're going to be sh sharply delineated in some small sections and in complete obscurity in others. And as the torches flicker and people move, the frescoes would seem to be almost animated. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was one sense in which I thought, okay, that's like the operational side of the room. The cinematic organization of the groups uh, within the fresco cycle would enable them to look as though they were actually engaged in that ritual when a flickering light passes over them. So it, it, it's like selectively revealing and then obscuring um, what's going on. And it's all part of that disorientation. I mean, going into a room like that, um, when it's been prepared for ritual 
action of a very intense kind, the walls are going to affect your awareness. You know, you're, you're going to be in a very unfamiliar space in that mm -hmm. sense, one in which the boundaries between live action and the frescoes become blurred. And I, I don't know, uh, certainly it's one of the characteristics of strong ritual spaces is that they tend to distort your awareness anyway. Mm -hmm. So that your ability to, so to speak, focus in on and, and, and like feel grounded is like cut away from you. Yes. Okay. So it, it helps you in this process of, of discarding. It's like dropping the anchors by which you hold your awareness uh, in, in data day-to-day -day check so mm -hmm. that you can organize yourself and do things in a methodical way. So the, the room, that's why I describe it as heterotopic. It's designed to have this effect on a person. The, the other side of the obscurity in daytime, though, it could also be used as what I call a theater of memory, although that term didn't exist in the first century BC. The idea certainly did. And, you know, we, we know certain of the um, Roman houses were organized and used as theater of memory. In other words, you could take a very elaborate speech and then walk through and link uh, key components of your discourse to specific rooms and statues within it. And I think they've taken this idea um, because the lack of a strong doctrinal element within the mysteries entails that they are vulnerable to disruption and disconnection. People die, they move away and so on. So as a to, to provide a basis of continuity, it was kind of essential that they record a process from which you could recover the ritual. I believe that was also on their mind. This probably was not a problem for the itinerant initiators um, because they existed within their own family uh, networks. But for the elite Romans who uh, wished to conduct these rites, um, I think it was important that they, they document it. And I think that's why the room has this dual aspect. On the one hand, it's, it's as I say, heterotopic. On the other side, it, it works as a theater of memory to anchor the ritual process. I don't know if that covers everything in that paragraph, Greg. But well, yeah, it certainly is. Um, I appreciate that. Thank mm -hmm. you. In the Chamber of Reflection, Peter Mark Adams, Rudolph, and I continue this wonderful interview. Listen to that exclusive recording at chamberofreflection.com or at our Patreon at patreon.com slash personality. And again, as a reminder that beginning this week, I'll be posting older content from the Chamber of Reflection archive publicly at no charge. During this time, I want to offer you some additional material to fill your days again, with more magic and mystery. And I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create, we ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash personality. 
And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks. And I salute you. Thanks for listening. And until next time.